Good evening, everybody. Uh, it is a, an honor and a pleasure to uh, glorify God through the preaching of His Word. And I hope that I can uh, bestow upon you some wisdom and thoughts on uh, the, uh, um, the Catechism uh, number 109 today. I've been given the task of teaching on the second request or command that we are given in the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew 6.10. Specifically, thy kingdom come. We will be working within the framework of question 109 of the Baptist Catechism based on the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, which asks the question, what do we pray for in the second petition? The answer to that is in the second petition, which is thy kingdom come. We pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. First, I think it's important to establish whose kingdom we are speaking of. It is, of course, the kingdom of God that we speak of, the one true God, the creator of the universe and all that it contains, of which he is sovereign, ruler, or king. And to paraphrase Abraham Kuyper, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which God, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's not Satan's, it's not man's, it's God's. In 1 Chronicles 29:11, David even states, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth is your domain, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. And it's important that we establish this so that there is no mistaking whatsoever as to who is in control. In Genesis, it is clear that God's plan from the beginning has been to establish his kingdom on earth. However, Adam and Eve, two of the main players in the Garden of Eden, listened to the serpent and revolted against God, the king of all creation plunging the world and all of mankind into sin and putting us at enmity or making us an enemy of God. Thusly, Satan became an usurper and established a reign of sin on earth. And there was no plan B, though. God, being outside of time and space and having looked across and through time, weighing every possible situation and its outcome, stayed within his original and perfect plan the plan that would glorify himself. Scripture is replete with God's restorative work to redeem his people and bring them back into communion with himself and to no longer be an enemy of the kingdom or of God. R.C. Sprawl called, called this cosmic treason because we're sinning or offending the king of the universe and his kingdom. Approximately 2,000 years later, God called Abraham and promised that through him, Abraham, all nations of the earth would be blessed and that from his line, kings would come, indicating that his redemptive purpose continued to include God's plan to establish a kingdom. Now we fast forward 400 years, and this is, where, this is the time that God brought Israel out of the land of Egypt and designated them a kingdom of priests. And uh, Exodus 19.6 states, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was to be a manifestation of God's kingdom 
on one small parcel of earth. The nation was to be a type of his eschatological reign over all the earth. So now what do we mean when we say that something is a type? Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines type as a sign, a symbol, a figure of something to come. For example, Abraham taking Isaac to be sacrificed in Genesis 22 is a type of foreshadowing of Christ. Something that has to come, or I'm sorry, that was to come, as Abraham was obedient to offer his only son Isaac in obedience to the Father, so would the Father offer up his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sin. The type of Abraham, I'm sorry, the type of Abraham, the type, I wrote this wrong, the type of Abraham offering Isaac pointed forward to Christ. The crucifixion of Christ was the anti-type or the final and full expression of the type. And before entering the promised land of Canaan, Moses told the people that after they went into the land, they would set a king over themselves that God would choose. And we find this in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. The people of Israel did eventually set Saul over themselves as king. Saul, however, was disobedient to God and pretty much found every possible way to offend God that he could. And then enter a shepherd boy by the name of David, the son of Jesse and the youngest of his sons. David served as a type of the true and final king God would one day send to rule over his everlasting kingdom. David pointed forward to Christ. Note that David, like Jesus, was a shepherd as well. And there's actually even a theme running through the Old Testament of shepherds, because even in the very beginning, uh, Abel was a shepherd as well. After Saul was deposed, David was anointed king over all Israel. He conquered the city of Jerusalem and brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city. When God had given David rest from all his enemies, David expressed his desire to build a house for God, a permanent temple instead of the tabernacle. God's response to David is found in 2 Samuel 7, 4 through 16. It's here that God promised David that he would build David a house and establish, establish the kingdom of David's offspring forever. God's plan to establish a kingdom on earth reached a new stage with the establishment of this perpetual covenant with David and with David's offspring. When the monarchy of Israel began to decline, the Davidic covenant became the center around which the prophets would build their messages of hope for the future. They looked forward to the coming of a new Davidic king, a Messiah who would establish a righteous kingdom. They expected the coming of God to rule over his people. In one significant passage, Isaiah looks forward to the coming rule of God in the following words. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah 52, 7. When Jesus and John the Baptist came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they were speaking of something for which the Jews had been waiting in anticipation for centuries. That's very patient. <laughs> When Jesus went throughout the land proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, he was bringing the good news of the advent of God's reign that Isaiah had anticipated. This history helps us to understand the meaning of the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. 
When Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount teaches his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, there's a lot of Old Testament background in this concept. The kingdom of God was something the Jews were expecting for a very long time. During the time of Jesus, Jews even concluded their synagogue services with a prayer called the Kaddish. That is very similar to the section of the Lord's Prayer, and it goes like this. Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world which he created according to his will. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel speedily and soon. Praised be his great name from eternity to eternity. And to this say, Amen. So how does God's kingdom come? When we read the Lord's Prayer concerning the kingdom within context of the entire book of Matthew, we notice that in some passages the kingdom is spoken of as something that is imminent. Both John and Jesus declare that the kingdom of God is at hand. The Greek word translated at hand means has come near. Elsewhere, Jesus speaks of the kingdom as an already present reality. Jesus states in Matthew 12, 28, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Yet in his instructions regarding prayer, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray that the kingdom of God will come in a way that it has not yet come. The phrase, thy kingdom come, is parallel to the phrase, thy will be done. In fact, both of these phrases, as well as the phrase, hallowed be your name, have the exact same construction in the Greek text underlying our English translations. There is a connection between these three petitions. Part of what it means for God's kingdom to come is for his name to be hallowed. This is not a fulfilled reality yet, so the prayer anticipates a future state of affairs. And we need to remember the Lord's kingdom is currently a spiritual kingdom that will be consummated or fully realized at the day of judgment. This is part of what is often described as the already not yet tension. God is already reigning over all things in a spiritual sense, but we do not yet see the fullness of that reign in a material way. Amen. So how do we reconcile the various ways of looking at the kingdom of God? We can understand the New Testament teaching regarding the kingdom more clearly when we grasp the fact that for the New Testament authors, the term kingdom, which in the Greek is basilie, assuming that's right, refers most often to the royal reign of God rather than to the specific territory over which God rules. Also important to note is that for the New Testament authors, the coming of the kingdom or reign of God does not happen at a single moment in time. Instead, the coming of the kingdom involves a series of events that occur over a period of time. When Jesus declares that the kingdom of God has come and yet is still coming, he is saying that the prophesied last act in the drama of redemption has begun, but that it has not yet reached its conclusion. In other words, we are in the midst of the last act. So why do we pray that God's kingdom will come? That is so that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed. Ephesians 2.2 tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And in 1 Peter 5.8 it says that Satan is our adversary 
and that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We are in a constant battle with Satan and the powers of darkness. Now, every kingdom has an army. Even the devil has his army of darkness. And as Christians, we are part of God's army. Ephesians 6.13 tells us to put on the full armor of God so that we will be able to resist in the evil day, and that's every day, and having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Satan and his army do not take holidays. They don't take lunch breaks or time to rest, and they don't give Christians, he doesn't give Christians time to prepare. He and his minions are constantly waging war with the saints and the church. This is why we need to devote more time to the word and less time to things like social media and television and movies and other things that might draw us away from God. We need to retrain or reprogram, I'm sorry, we need to train our children in the word of God daily. We need to retrain or reprogram them and ourselves from what the world throws at them each day on television and media. The church is attacked also. There is no lack of liberal pastors churning out liberal theology to appease the masses to make people feel good about themselves. We need godly men in the pulpits of America who aren't afraid to speak the truth. We need godly men and women and children who will stand up for the gospel in their communities, in their workplaces, in their schools, and in some cases, even in their own churches for the truth and integrity and moral character. Another reason we pray thy kingdom come is for the advancement of the kingdom. How is this done? is done by God through us, the saints, the elect of God. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The kingdom of God is advanced through faithful preaching, men rightly dividing the word of God, men unashamed to speak the truth and push back against the culture. It has been said that culture should not shape the church, but that the church should shape the culture. And we can shape the culture in a godly manner if we don't water down the word of God. We should not be afraid to speak the truth. Someone once said that the greatest of all the virtues is truth, because without truth, all you have are lies. And with lies, you commit atrocities. With lies, you load people into ships to be sold into slavery, and you send others to concentration camps to die. All because of a lie, and because others are unwilling to stand up and speak the truth. If we do not speak the truth of the gospel, then are we not just as guilty? And preaching doesn't just come from the pulpit, though. It comes from the everyday Christian as well. Our lives, our testimony to our family and our friends and our co-workers and, and anyone that we encounter each day. We are commanded to be in the world, but not of the world. People should notice a distinct difference in how we act, how we dress, speak, work, and play. We preach the good news, not only in word, but in deed. 
And we accomplish these things by leaning on Christ for strength and help. Because unless the Lord build the house, we labor in vain. Through prayer, we ask the Lord to help us be good and effective citizens of the kingdom. We ask God for opportunities to share the gospel and to tell of his reign and urge them to come to repentance and to put their full trust wholeheartedly in Christ. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are praying for others to be brought into the kingdom. We are to pray for sinners and that their practices would be restrained. Psalm 7-9 says, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. And we must not become discouraged in our evangelizing if we encounter a negative response, because we will encounter negative and hostile responses. Because it's not us who calls one into the kingdom. It is by God and God alone. Someone plants, another waters, and Christ reaps the harvest. Praying for the lost and or the wicked is a selfless act. We must humble ourselves. We are to die to ourselves and live for Christ. As Aldous Huxley stated, our kingdom go is the necessary and unavoidable unavoidable corollary of thy kingdom come. For the more there is self, the less there is of God. The divine eternal fullness of life can be gained only by those who have deliberately lost this partial, separative life of craving and self-interest, of egocentric thinking, feeling, wishing, and acting. By praying thy kingdom come, we are also hastening the coming of God's kingdom. We look for the day when evil will be eradicated and wiped out, and those who oppose God will be put into submission by Christ. By taking on flesh and coming to make the hope of salvation a reality, Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom. He has been given all authority in heaven and earth. Jesus, the second Adam, accomplished what the first Adam could not. Christ's entire life of obedience, atoning death, and resurrection are the means by which he inaugurated the kingdom. The appearance of the king, Jesus, on earth was and is a summoning of all his creation to submit to his rule. Like a king opening the gates, though they be narrow, to his kingdom and beckoning his people from all nations to himself. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom by doing what no man could do. In essence, the kingdom of God is a great community of the redeemed, the realm of God's saving sovereignty, which Jesus called the kingdom of God, where we will reign with Christ. But why do we need to continue to pray your kingdom come? Because on earth, there are still those who do not submit to God's rule. We see it every day. When we, when we pray your kingdom come, we are praying for the continued extension of God's reign on earth. We are praying for God to convert the hearts of his enemies, causing them to confess Jesus as Lord. We are praying that he puts those who refuse to submit beneath his feet. Psalm 110.1 says, I will make your enemies your footstool. We are praying also for the day when all evil, all sin, and all rebellion against God is finally eradicated. Through the, though the day of the Lord is a great and marvelous day for the saints of God, it will be a day, a terrible day of wrath and judgment for the impenitent, for those who rebel against God. 
we must understand that when we pray your kingdom come, that we are already citizens of his kingdom, and he is already our king. But are we faithful subjects, or are we rebellious? If we are to pray in the way our Lord instructed, we must be those who live in the way our Lord instructed, not as the world lives, instead holy and living for Christ. Martin Luther, from his commentary on Thy Kingdom Come, says that just as God's name is already holy, God's kingdom will already come without our help. Yet we pray that it may come to us, that is, that it may prevail among us and with us so that we may be part of those among whom God's name is hallowed and God's kingdom flourishes. And the way this is accomplished is through God's holy word and living for Christ. And by doing so, God's name will be praised. We petition God to allow us to continue to grow on a daily basis and in order that others may follow Christ and advance the power throughout the world. Martin Luther also provides thought on how the kingdom of God takes place. I had to use Martin Luther because tomorrow's Reformation Day. I'm sure you all have your decorations up <laughs> on your front door. Uh, the coming of God's kingdom to uh, the coming of God's kingdom to us takes place in two ways. First, it comes here in time through the word and faith, and then second, in eternity, it comes through the final revelation. All this is nothing more than to say, Dear God, we ask you first to give us your word so that the gospel may be properly preached throughout the world and then that it may also be received in faith and may work and dwell in us so that your kingdom may pervade among us through the word and the power of the Holy Spirit in triumph over the kingdom of the devil. So in conclusion, we should ask for God's kingdom to, kingdom to come because we are commanded to do so, not out of compulsion or fear, but because we love God, we love others, and want to see them brought into the kingdom, and because we hate evil and want to see the devil's kingdom fall and all the wickedness in the world done away with, and then we will have everything else in abundance. Matthew 6.33 tells us that we should seek the kingdom of God, seek first the kingdom of God. And one more quote from Martin Luther says that for how could God allow us to suffer want in temporal things while promising eternal and imperishable things? Thank you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> if anybody has any questions, I will quickly deflect them to Nick. No, okay. <laughs> Do we have any questions? Uh, Can I get off this tonight? <laughs> that was a clean message, brother. Thank you. It was uh, all God with me. <laughs> Didn't know you were that important. It was, it's just good to hear how, you know, the flow of the words from, you know, the way the thought developed out. I mean, I guess we haven't had that much discussion, you and I, on, you know, last things and just to hear the way you put together the, eschatolo the eschatological part of it with, you know, the here and now. Thank you. If there's nothing else, refreshments will be at John's. No, okay. <laughs> you want me to turn this off? Or? All right. Thank you, Jeff.
Appreciate you being willing to preach, brother. We've got uh, several messages still as we work our way through the Lord's Prayer, and so uh, we hope that you'll keep coming back on Sunday evenings. This might be a record for the, uh, the shortest Sunday evening service we've ever had, <laughs> which means we just got more time to stick around and talk afterwards, so we hope that you, we hope that you will do that, but uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. <laughs>